Was the congressional attack on Trump's pandemic response scripted in the 2017 Johns Hopkins SPARS exercise? I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Hey, y'all, it's been a while. I've been out of town. I wanted to just let you know before we dive in here that you can get this show commercial free and all of the deep dives that I've ever done commercial free on my solo feed, Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And you can also get all of my shows commercial free and all of Binkley's shows commercial free including the premium stuff on rockfin.com slash propaganda reports. So join us here, join us there. Uh, Join me on Deep Dives with Monica Perez, whatever tickles your fancy. But for now, strap on your tanks because we're going for a dive and we're going to just take a giant stride off the platform provided by Politico. Here's the headline. Trump White House exerted pressure on FDA for COVID-19 emergency use authorizations. Well, there's a big subtitle, too. A report by House Democrats examining the pandemic says Trump officials sought vaccine approvals to sway voters before the 2020 election. Now, for me, those are two totally different things. The emergency use authorizations for certain COVID therapeutics, which we will discuss, is quite different, in my opinion, from uh, fast-tracking vaccine approvals. I'm going to tell you the details of this article and the congressional report they're referring to. And, and I'll tell you, in the end, all in all, like I feel like Trump was totally right. Like I'm not, not totally right. Um, the vaccine stuff I didn't like, but I was not convinced by the congressional stuff. And it's funny because it's clearly partisan. So it's the Democrats that put this report out and it's the, the way they present the report. It's like so partisan and histrionic and, you know, um, sensationalistic, but there's stuff in there that I want to cover. And one thing that I found really interesting about it is in the way they present their arguments and even just the fact that they're doing this, it is straight out of this SPARS document from 2017. And I just, I, I'm going to tell you about the SPARS document. I'm going to tell you about the congressional stuff. I'm going to kind of give you the takeaways here. But the thing about, about all of this is when you, when you look at how a lot of this stuff unfolded and you look back at the scenarios, all coming out of Johns Hopkins, um, some of the scenarios that were older came out of Rockefeller Foundation, but... There, a lot of stuff comes out of Johns Hopkins, and you can see that it's it's it, it feels like it's it's all scripted, that it's orchestrated, that there's some kind of conspiracy, either to make these things up or at least to script out how the propaganda is going to work. So, and and there's some value also because it's. It's not over yet. This that I'm looking at here from this congressional stuff is from the last chapter of the SPARS document, which is only actually about a page long. I might read you the whole thing. Uh, But first, let me tell you what the specifics are in the congressional reports. There were two reports. The first one so far, the first one criticized the Trump administration for encouraging the idea of herd immunity, and they're suggesting that that cost lives. Now, I would, I, I'm not convinced 
I think I'm not convinced herd immunity is not a fair, but I think that's what we're experiencing right now. And then the second report, which this latest Politico article was referring to, talks about the Trump's White House's efforts to get hydroxychloroquine that emergency use authorization extended, that it was trying to get convalescent plasma approved and that it was trying to bypass kind of fast track just by a short amount of time, but fast track the vaccine approval so that they could start rolling the vaccines out before election day. So this is happening in the fall of 2020. Now, I don't like the fast track vaccine things. I don't like the vaccine stuff at all. But the other stuff, the herd immunity and then hydroxychloroquine, I, I, I'm not convinced that that was a bad thing. I think they should have pushed the EUA on that. And I wonder, and oh, the convalescent plasma, right? Or I guess it was around that time. I can't remember, but one of my brothers got COVID. He was actually in for another procedure, but he got super sick and he could not get the other procedure, but he was in the hospital talking to the doctor about the other thing. And they admitted him. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like, uh, I was worried about if he would get good treatment there. And the word came down that they were giving him this convalescent plasma. It was like a four-hour blood transfusion or something. I don't know. And he just turned around immediately. And I thought, wow, I guess they're giving them good stuff in the hospital now because the vaccines just rolled out and they want the numbers to improve of people being sick. Like I thought there was a lot of funny business going on there. And the convalescent plasma I had very high hopes for. It's not the same thing as like the antibody like pill or whatever. It's like, It was like a blood transfusion and boy, did it fix him right up. So when I'm reading this Trump thing, I'm thinking they were probably getting stonewalled at any every turn for all these therapeutics that could have worked because then you can't fa fast track the vaccine. And so reading this entire congressional thing, it actually made me feel like Trump and his crew were really trying to get good stuff through for the most part. But let me... Uh, the reason I'm going back and forth is that there are some quotes from this article that remind me so much of the Spars thing that first I want to tell you about what the Spars thing is, and then we'll go a little more back and forth. So in my opinion, to the Spars thing is really a propaganda blueprint and practice exercise just to see how it would go. And just the title alone will tell you basically what it is. It says, it's a scenario and the scenario is on this is and the way they do these scenarios, it's Ogilvy and Schwartz. Like this guy was in the Stanford Research Institute. He um, did that Rockefeller Foundation 2010 report on how to get technology to the far corners of the earth, no matter what the world atmosphere is like. And they did four different scenarios for that. He also did like the Esalen Institute and a lot of like really deep state kind of seems like CIA countercultural stuff in the 60s. Maybe not the 60s, but maybe the 60s. He's pretty old. But anyway, so the scenario they chose for this, which is a novel coronavirus that causes a respiratory disease and it was going to be in the near future. It was like supposed to be 2025. They said that the atmosphere would be an unbridled global access to information coupled with social fragmentation and self-affirming worldviews. 
And I think we pretty much got that. But this is from 2017, which is right after Trump got elected. And I feel like they gave us social fragmentation on purpose. They wanted to put us in silos. I've talked about it before. And that the self-affirming worldviews comes from social media, let's say, that's tailored to a particular fragment of society. And then the subtitle there is Risk and Crisis Communication Dilemmas. Risk and Crisis Communication Dilemmas in this atmosphere. So you have lots and lots of information. You have social fragmentation. You have self-affirming worldviews. And you have communication dilemmas that the health authorities are trying to work through if there's a crisis. So as they go through this, they go through a lot of different details and they talk about how to handle each eventuality. So the one I've talked about before on the air is chapter 12, don't pull all your eggs in one basket. It said, what if there's a massive power outage in some state or bunch of states when you're rolling out the vaccine? Can you get through to people without using digital media? And the answer was yes. And it told you how. And it was like, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to cost a lot of money, but you can do it. And I feel like that's what they did with the Texas outage. So if this doesn't go too long, then I can go through some of the other unbelievably parallel details from the sparse documents to the actual thing that we experienced, whatever it actually was. So that's what this thing was. And when I read the report from the, the recent congressional report, it sounded so much like what they were brainstorming in the very last chapter, chapter 19, SPARS Aftermath. And I'm going to read that to you after I read the statement from the subcommittee chairman Clyburn that was in the first report. He says... The select subcommittee's investigation has revealed extensive evidence of the Trump administration's efforts to undermine the nation's public health response to the coronavirus crisis in an attempt to benefit the former president politically. As today's report makes clear, senior officials in the previous administration embraced a dangerous and discredited herd immunity via mass infection strategy promoted by non-expert advisors like Dr. Scott Atlas and recklessly allowed the coronavirus to infect Americans before vaccines were widely available. This dereliction of duty resulted in significant loss of life that could have been prevented. We must honor those we've lost. This is the part that really reflects Spars. We must honor those we've lost by bringing this shameful recent history to light and ensuring that it is never repeated. Politics must never again be prioritized over the health and lives of the American people. So a big part of this aftermath section of the SPARS document was how to make amends for pushing therapeutics that were not fully vetted and for the sacrifices the public made in accepting a vaccine without long-term trial data. So let me just read one quote out of the Spars thing in light of what the Clyburn quote is. They say, as the, as the pandemic tapered off, several influential politicians and agency representatives came under fire for sensationalizing the severity of the event for perceived political gain. As with many public health interventions, successful efforts to reduce the impact of the pandemic created the illusion that the event was not nearly as serious as experts suggested it would be. 
And then here's what I think is most relevant. President Archer's detractors in the Republican Party. So President Archer, the president here is Democrat. So they have the parties flipped in the sparse thing. So the Republicans are the highly vaccinated party and the president they're criticizing is Democrat. So it says President Archer's detractors in the Republican Party seize the opportunity to publicly disparage the president and his administration's response to the pandemic urging voters to elect a strong leader with the best interests of the American people at heart. So they anticipate all this back and forth. And uh, in the real one, they continue by saying in the second report, the select subcommittee's findings that Trump White House officials deliberately and repeatedly sought to bend FDA's scientific work on coronavirus treatments and vaccines to the White House's political will are yet another example of how the prior administration prioritized politics over public health. So that was another Clyburn quote. So that just, I mean, reading both of these or all three of these quotes kind of one after another, they sound the same. Not that it isn't predictable, like how politics works, but some of the details are like eerily similar. One of them was that the Democrat president this guy's predecessor, but still a Democrat, that it was a woman, that she hesitated to accept the therapeutic that was being pushed on behalf of her, like, unborn grandson. And because of her hesitation, the Republicans fully embraced the therapeutic and probably the vaccines as well because they wanted to show that she was stupid and they were smart that kind of thing. But that's exactly what they did, except for flipped with hydroxychloroquine, which Trump embraced. But I'll tell you why I think, actually, to get back to the real story, I feel, and Politico didn't really get too much into it, but I guess they felt they had to read a little bit of the response that, so the guy who's taking most of the heat for this is Peter Navarro, who was a former trade advisor under Trump, but he also worked on the administration's coronavirus response. So he made a statement to Politico, who's writing this article, that uh, Navarro maintains that he believed hydroxychloroquine was a valuable treatment for COVID, and he was justified in carrying out Trump's orders to apply pressure to the FDA to make sure the drug was widely accessible. Like, I'm down with that. And then he says the partisan House Select Committee report wrongly perpetuates one of the most deadly lies of the pandemic, namely that the safe and powerful therapeutic hydroxychloroquine was somehow dangerous. He said he would lose that battle with the FDA and hundreds of thousands of Americans would needlessly die, he's saying, because of, and he's naming names as the people who are standing in his way, Stephen Hahn, Janet Woodcock, Rick Bright, who I've talked about before, I'll tell you about him in a second, Tony Fauci, and the broader FDA bureaucracy. The result will forever be a stain on the FDA and a shame on the House subcommittee for perpetuating the lie. I mean, that's probably an under, uh, uh, under-repeated quote, but that seems right to me. It feels like if that's what they're focusing on, they probably don't have a lot. But I don't know if you remember this, but I did talk about Rick Bright, who was in charge of um, funding trials. I guess the government pays for the freaking trials <laughs> you know, for pharmaceutical companies. I mean, isn't that just sick? We pay for the trials. They push the drugs. We force you to get they, the government forces you to get the drugs and then takes the tax dollars and pays the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, it's just will make your head explode. Uh, but Rick Bright did step down saying that the Trump administration was just pressuring him, pressuring and pressuring him to support a drug that later became Molnup 
Puravir, Malnupiravir, which is the competitor, I guess, with um, Paxlovid, which is the thing they're giving out now. But watch out. Do not take that stuff if you are pregnant. No, no, no. This Rick Bright, who doesn't seem like a great guy, overall stepped down over that or was pushed out over that because it's a mutagenic. They found in animal studies it was a mutagenic. And one of these guys, I think maybe um, Hatfill or one of the guys who is on the Navarro side of the story, said you just never, you never proceed funding a mutagenic. And what it does is it takes like um, genes and it inserts it into the viral genes so the virus can't reproduce itself. But when that goes wrong, it inserts genes into the other genes and babies or um, animal babies were born with like missing pieces of their skulls and like super messed up stuff. So stay away from that stuff if you're pregnant. So if that's true that the administration was also pushing that, you know, that would alarm me, but that's not coming up in this subcommittee thing. So I, I can't be sure. Uh, anyway, so, but here was another thing, and it seemed like a smoking gun, so Congress included it in their report, but I consider it to be, like, uh, exonerating. It says Dr. Hatfill, who was an adjunct virology professor at George Washington University, and he was one of Navarro's advisors, Hatfill expressly tied the timing of the actions of putting these pressures on to get hydroxychloroquine um, extended to the November presidential election, saying to Navarro, or writing to Navarro, within 10 to 14 days of the HCQ outpatient treatment, figures should start to decrease. And he said, isn't that about the time some sort of voting starts? So he's like, if we can just get it done by November 1st, people will, will get better. <laughs> you know, isn't that what we all want? Like, even if you're politically motivated, if your political motivation is to give people what they want, make them healthy and get the bureaucracy that's standing in the way of a, an effective therapeutic, uh, if that's what is motivating you politically, aren't our interests aligned? Isn't that what we want? <laughs> Were they supposed to cave to the more shadowy political motives behind the FDA stopping this stuff? Is that what we're supposed to say? Are, are they betraying the political machine <laughs> in favor of helping the people? So I found this very, very convincing that, that the, the Trump administration was on net beneficial. Now, it sound, may sound like I'm a Trump homer, but I didn't vote for Trump. I'm not a, not a Trump fan. Although I did all those shows with Garland and there's um, about the election in Georgia and there's like stuff going on there where they're turning the tables and they're trying to get people in trouble for uh, holding their feet to the fire. And it's when they start, I, I was, I think I made all those videos private of my conversations with Garland and they just got, they were getting me strikes on YouTube. So I just had to emergency erase them all. And I'm still having trouble with my YouTube account. I think Facebook won't even stream me at all. I'm assuming that's why. But man, it's a little nerve wracking. Anyway, I digress. And actually another little digression within the article itself was that these guys are being criticized, Navarro and company, for using a private email server. So that actually ties into the FBI raid stuff at Mar-a-Lago, which I have yet to see 
a single picture that shows anything but Palm Beach cops outside Mar-a-Lago. I still question if that thing happened at all, although I realize it's a huge theme in the news. I do wonder about that. And they do say that these private email server and stuff became weaponized. These laws, actually, Navarro, I think, said, like, you're weaponizing these laws. But I think Trump kind of weaponized the laws in in the aftermath of Hillary's email server thing. So that's kind of funny how it's circling back on itself. But here's the thing. So the the big question here as to if there is a legitimate investigation into malfeasance by the government surrounding the response to this so-called pandemic, it doesn't seem like a genuine attempt at all to get to the real answers, since it is very partisan. I'm totally unconvinced by what they're coming up with. It actually feeds more into my feelings that uh, Trump was probably justified more than not justified, and maybe the FDA was the one who was stonewalling and not these guys strong-arming or it was reactionary or whatever. Like, I'm not convinced. So this doesn't seem like a super real investigation to me or like oh, the worm turning and all the truth will be revealed. I don't know. It could be. Uh, I want to read some tweets on the subject that I got and then maybe I'll read you the rest of this one page of the aftermath from Spars and maybe we'll get into a little bit of the other details that were in Spars. So first tweet is... Minnesota Black Robe Regiment. He says, regime angling to accuse Trump of profiteering from the coup and using political power to sway advisors to do as he wanted done for the sake of political gain. Yes, I see that. Then he goes on to say, a setup to further DQ DT for being a viable candidate in 24. If the indicted Trump, if they indicted Trump, it would up his stature with the MAGA base and energize him. Now, I thought that was very interesting because that was the response I felt reading this. Not that I think that he's going to run in 2024 or would want him to, but um, I just want, uh, I, I always vote for Ron Paul. So... The idea that this is just pissing people off, kind of like the FBI raid, I think may be true. Now, it also feeds a narrative that the other side parrots, but I think as far as getting people off the couch, it's probably more reactionary. And it's funny because throughout the SPARS document, it talks about how Republicans respond to what the Democrats are doing. And I actually coined a term, partisan reverse psychology, so whatever it is, so persecuting someone will get the reaction. The reaction is what you're after. I mean, it's not a, a hard concept to understand, but I see it happening more and more. Okay. Graveyard Pirate tweeted, oh yeah, this is a good one too. Not that they've ever really had a reason for an EUA vaccine, an emergency use vaccine in his opinion, but now that the CDC is coming out with the success of ivermectin, how can they still claim an emergency use authorization? I thought if there was an approved drug on the market to treat an illness, then there's no legitimacy in an EUA drug. Yes, um, that's my understanding as well. And another thing that came up in the SPARS document over and over again was using not only the vaccine court, but the PrEP Act, 
which is a real thing. And it seems to me this this document, this scenario seems to me to just be uh, for the pharmaceutical industry telling them how to CYA and all of this. Because what they do is they say uh, all this stuff will fall underneath the PrEP Act, which like vaccines have liability protection, um, but it's pretty well defined how and when. Whereas the PrEP Act covers a lot of stuff, therapeutics, all kind of medical countermeasures, vaccines, stuff like that, that are under an emergency use authorization. It extends who is protected from liability and all that. And then even in some of the aftermath stuff in the SPARS, I, I think the that chapter is called something else, um, Vaccine Injury, Chapter 17. It says that when parents with injured children... I mean, vaccine injury is in here. There's a, there's a chapter <laughs> about it. When parents of children who were injured or who they thought were injured by the vaccine wanted to get the liability shield lifted and expose the pharmaceutical companies, they were placated by assurances that the PrEP Act would cover them and that Congress would fill up the PrEP Act coffers. The, there's a liability injury kind of fund in the PrEP Act. So, so the PrEP Act insulates the pharmaceutical companies and a lot of other things for, from liability, but they pay out injured people with taxpayer dollars in this PrEP Act thing. And in the in this bars document, it says, tell them that they're going to get PrEP recovery. So they drop all these actions to get liability um, immunity lifted. And then later it says, oh, well, we're going to push off paying them out until long-term studies are completed. So it will take years before they can even try to prove that they should get recovery from PrEP. Like it's really sinister the, the way they're doing it in this. But um, they're in the sparse document, they use real, actual real shields and strategies. So uh, the last tweet I got was, where is this investigation going? I would say it's directly to the scapegoat that is about to be sacrificed for the public's care. And I think that's what, what they're saying here, is that I think there's a chance that Trump's being scapegoated. Or, you know, maybe it's going to give him an excuse not to run in 2024. I don't know. But let me read some more stuff out of this. Uh, it's, it's a few paragraphs, but it's better than you having to track down the document. Okay, a widespread social media movement. This is all in Chapter 19 of SPAR's Aftermath. A widespread social media movement led primarily by outspoken parents of affected children, coupled with widespread distrust of big pharma, supported the narrative that the development of SPAR's medical countermeasures was unnecessary and driven by a few profit-seeking individuals. Get this next line. Conspiracy theories, remember this was written in 2017. Conspiracy theories also proliferated across social media, suggesting that the virus had been purposely created and introduced to the population by drug companies, or that it had escaped from a government lab secretly testing bioweapons. I mean, I would say you can't make this stuff up, but I think they made this stuff up. Okay, it goes on to say, 
Here, here's the stuff that sounds like it could be headed toward the scapegoat. After action reports, government hearings and agency reviews following the pandemic were too numerous to count. As the investigations grew in intensity, several high-ranking officials at the CDC and FDA were forced to step down and withdraw from government in order to spend more time with their families, quote. Now, remember, a lot of this stuff is flipped. So the Republicans are the vaccinated ones and the FDA is the bad guy. Exhausted employees of these agencies, many of whom worked long hours, six or seven days a week throughout the pandemic, simply wanted to put the whole response behind them. Little desire remained on the part of decision makers or those who served in the trenches during the response to rehash the events of the past several years. So they anticipate that there will be investigations and that people will have to step down. But the thing that I found really interesting and maybe more forward-looking is chapter 18, which is called Acknowledging Loss. They have a bunch of people get together. Uh, the head of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, as well as other people in the administration, and they talk about the implications of growing negative public opinion regarding the vaccine and the government's perceived indifference to victims of the public health response to the pandemic. The mental health official said prompted them to acknowledge no top political or public health figurehead had publicly recognized the collective sense of vulnerability that the pandemic had elicited or the strength that the public exhibited under threat of grave danger. Nor did any national leader publicly acknowledge the public's broad willingness to accept a prescribed countermeasure that promised to end the pandemic, but whose long-term consequences were not fully understood at the time. They collaborated with stakeholders to devise behavioral health guidance for the states, tribes, and territories on how to strengthen the public's coping skills, provide support for grieving individuals, encourage a forward direction, and meet other SPARS recovery needs. It was further recommended that the health secretary, Nagel, consult with President Archer about the possibility of acknowledging the emotional toll of SPARS during a future public appearance. The primary message would be one of gratitude to the American people for remaining strong during the pandemic. Another key message would convey appreciation for adhering to public health recommendations, including vaccinations, to hasten the end of the pandemic in the face of considerable uncertainty. The president agreed to address the country's resolve and recovery in the face of SPARS. Top risk communication advisors from the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, and the uh, Mental Health Administration conferred as a group about how best to frame the president's remarks. I mean, this, is de this definitely happens. The group vigorously debated whether it was appropriate for the president, get this, to acknowledge the sacrifice that vaccine recipients had made on behalf of their communities or to console them in their grief over that sacrifice. I mean, I do not expect them to make that statement, but <laughs> I think they probably had the meeting as to whether or not they should make the statement. So I found, I just find it interesting. I had, I thought I had a, a hashtag straight out of spars, but I can only find one thing in it. Um, I might, I might, the one of straight out of event 201 might still have like a lot of tweets in it, but 
if it doesn't, then they're definitely messing with old tweets because I try to keep a record of headlines that reflect some of these scenarios that predate the actual crisis. Uh, so there's, I mean, there are really, I think I have like a dozen shocking similarities between the SPARS document and what really happened. The, really, the details are uncanny, but you'll have to go to the show notes to get that because I want to save time for another summer white pill. Now, this is super personal, so I, I don't mean I'm like going to tell you my personal thing, but it's just very personal. Hopefully, this is interesting, but it, this is how I get my white pills is like when I have positive emotions from a positive experience. So uh, at the risk of showing you my slides from vacation, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened. So last weekend was Labor Day, and I went to a, a wedding of my uh, nephew and his lovely now bride. And I went with my family, like all my kids, and we, I was preparing to get my daughter to college the next day. So we were all there, and it was in New England. Uh, the people who went to my New Hampshire meetup or my Massachusetts meetup probably met some of these people. It's They all live kind of... Um, on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire border. Uh, although this was at a harbor, this was on the ocean. And when I went, I also went to the bridal shower in New Hampshire. And I was so blown away by how, like, I think the word is bucolic, like how normal, how, you know, kind of old fashioned. And these are not homesteaders, like uh, my people, but they are just like, people who maybe went to high school together or college together got married and have kids and have normal jobs and they're still friends. And like, for me, I look at that and I think, you know, I think LA is bad for the psyche in that way. Cause like, I just, maybe it's cause I'm a transplant. I don't really know, but I just don't get that sense of community and familiarity. And like some of the people, the the kids, the friends, the people in the wedding party, like their parents were there because this was an old you know, a community that had been together for a while. And I got a lot of hope out of that. Um, everybody had babies, little babies and stuff. And I just got, somebody's complaining like, ah, oh, these babies are all crying. It's just like, oh my gosh, it's like church. When the babies cry in church, I'm like, thank God there are babies. Um, I'm not, you know, they left. They didn't stay too. They weren't burning the midnight oil with the babies. It was fine. But I just, I like to hear the babies. Anyway, and I just, I realized uh, how important it is you know, even if it's your friends or your family or whatever, and the friends kind of become family when you learn that you have the same values and you can trust each other and you contribute. And funny enough, like my takeaway was, because I've been gone, I, I've lived in different places and I'm not always there for people like physically in the moment. I get there when I can. I help when I can. They definitely come to me and help me. And I appreciate that. And I realized because I brought my kids here and uh, my kids had a terrible time during lockdown. It was very difficult for them. Um, this was just not, you know, they didn't feel like they had roots here. It was just not a good place for them to do that. And I was very worried and I got a lot of, I felt a lot of self-doubt as, you know, maybe I was too libertarian when I raised them or maybe I was like um, too uh, attentive, you know, maybe I wasn't libertarian enough, you know, maybe I coddled them. Like I just, I had a lot of self-doubt that I didn't prepare them for the real world and to socialize and all that kind of stuff. 
So I'm at this wedding and I see my sister and it's her son. And um, I just, it was very clear, like all of her hard work in raising her kids and being part of this community and stuff like paid off. And I was thinking, you know, I didn't do that. But a lot of people came up to me and were like, oh, your children are so lovely and whatever, all, all the kids. And I, I was like, wow. So I felt like I contributed to that community, even though I'm like hardly, you know, I don't interact with them, I'm not part of that community. But like I was bringing people into that community who had value. And I knew, you know, I know now that it's over that my kids have those same values, like they're trustworthy and they'll put out the effort and they have compassion. And um, even if our politics aren't always the same, you know, it's not really political. Politics is just, you know, the freaking screens. I can't stand it. Uh, so I felt like, like we were, we were here kind of isolated, taking care of ourselves and doing the best we could ourselves. And even though we were focusing on ourselves, ultimately when we plug back in, we contribute to the, that community. And I felt like that's an important takeaway. And I remembered something that my, that I went to Russia a couple of times, actually. I went, um, took one of my sons at one point and we went to like the artillery museum and there was a general, like the most famous Russian general, I have no idea what his name was. And his quote was, they asked him what his secret was. And he, his quote was, keep your feet warm and your head cool. And it took me the longest time to like realize the broad application of that. And I thought like when we were taking care of these kids, like you want to make sure that they have enough to eat, that they get enough sleep, that, you know, they have the right clothes and everything. Like you want to keep them, take care of them as healthy as you can, but don't like lose your head. Don't lose your cool. Don't panic. Like stay, keep your head together and you can get through it. And like we got through that. And I, and I have to tell you, the coolest thing of the whole event, and look, I am no Pollyanna. I'm not here to tell you, like, I have a perfect family at all. Like, our family has, you know, it's, it's fractured. It's had a lot of tragedy. We had a, a tragedy so devastating, even over this summer, that I would not speak about it. <laughs> you know, publicly, it was just a very sad thing. And, you know, we've had plenty of problems, but that's why it's so hopeful to me to see people come together and the culminating moment of this whole thing. So my nephew is so, so sweet. And he just loves my son. He loves all my kids, but he loves my son who has Down syndrome. And without making a fuss about it, he included him as a co-best man. You know, this is a guy who has a lot of best friends. You know, he's just one of those guys. I think he was like the captain of the football team. Like he doesn't need, <laughs> he's not looking for a new best man. Makes my son, and I had nothing to do with it. They didn't bother me with it. They got him the tux and everything. Um, the entire time on the wedding, uh, the whole weekend, they had him with them and they had him doing all the rehearsals and everything. It was amazing. And he did a great job. And his job, like, you know, people have different jobs when they're in the wedding party. His job was um, to consult on the music because he has good taste in music. So even though we were out here, they had a Zoom party, a Zoom party, Zoom call, the, uh, um, my nephew and his fiance and the DJ and my son. 
And I didn't, I wasn't even there. They did that list at the wedding. I guess because they had this relationship, the DJ, who was so cool, so professional, so hip, he let my son DJ and he took it seriously. And he was there, he was sweating because he was dancing so much. His coat was off, his tie was off. My son, I'm talking about, his, his cuffs were unbuckled. <laughs> my other said, the son said his suit was so big that he looked like two kids in a trench coat. <laughs> because, you know, people with Down syndrome are short. So he's doing it and he's taking it so seriously. He's got the headphones on. He's doing like scratching the album noise and all that kind of stuff. He's got, he's... uh he had, and he had the, cl- the crowd was going crazy, jumping up and down. And I mean, and it went on to the point where like people weren't even really excited, like, cause this kid has down syndrome. It was great music. And he was just bringing the energy. And I, I was just, I, I was like blown away at, you know, what a person can accomplish when they're really loved and respected. And I was just, you know, so moved by that and so inspired by that. And, um, and I realized that, you know, as, as a family, you know, sometimes it's your turn to give and sometimes it's your turn to get help. And then there's sometimes it's your turn to just like humbly allow, you know, other relationships and for people to be themselves. And I, and I, you know, I'm so glad it's not, it's not lost. You know, I'm so glad that this isolation that, and the politics that have turned family against family, Trump and vaccines, like that I feel like, you know, after what m- my personal experience with those exact issues, to have a moment where, you know, I felt like like there were just really good people who you could trust and love. And um, that even if you're, you know, isolated, just hang tough, you know, stay strong. And you will, you will have like, you know, you will bring something back. Even if you, you know, didn't, didn't all grow together. You grow, you know, you can grow on your own. And so take care of yourself. Like really, truly take care of yourself, take care of your family. It was like though Bishop said, I was like, I want to do more. And he's like, well, first you have to take care of your family. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Uh, that might've been the beginning of the end <laughs> for my daily show. But, uh, and I know Cam says that too. Like I, I tend my garden. And uh, anyway, so at the risk of going too long and showing you my, my slides, there's just a little, that was such a great way to end my white pill summer. And I saw my daughter off with uh, just so confident that that she could handle it and that she was, in fact, ready. So uh, I also wanted to just make sure, because I don't know, I don't get a lot of feedback. Uh, if you like the deep dives, if you like what I'm doing, I would love to get a little feedback. Please let me know. And one way that would be a really nice way for you to tell me that they're worthwhile because they take so much longer than I thought. Like I actually thought it was going to, I'd be able to do one every single day. Like I literally can barely do one once a week, but if you love them, if you like them, if you think it's a good use of my time, it's a joy to do. Uh, and I would keep doing it. And a, a great way to let me know is if you will 
give me a review on iTunes. You don't have to write anything down. I just like count the reviews. And so if you just give me stars without writing it down at all, um, I'll see. I have like 100 reviews right now. I'd love to have 150, you know. Uh, and then I will get the message that uh, you think the deep dives are worthwhile. And if you think this one was worthwhile, please uh, feel free to share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. Uh, you can tweet at me and CC a tweet if you want to me at Monica Perez Show. And you can find all of my stuff at monicasdeepdives.com or Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. <laughs>